Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to begin uh, welcoming Grant. Uh, do you want to stand up so everyone can see how tall you are? Uh, welcoming Grant uh, back home. Uh, Grant's been a fixture at Center of Gravity for several years and uh, just spent two years studying at the Tassajara Zen Monastery in California. And... Um, Welcome home. And also uh, welcome uh, everybody who, a lot of you here, who were on the New Year's retreat. Uh, We had a silent retreat, and uh, there were also new members of Center of Gravity that were on the retreat, too, like uh, Sondra and Fanny. You can put up your hands so people can see. (laughs) Fanny and Todd is here. Um, I'm probably missing others. So tonight we're going to explore uh, Case 38 from the Wumon Khan. Uh, the title of this koan is Why Can't the Tail Pass Through? Um, traditionally, when... Yeah. Oh, you can shut the window and let us all overheat. <laughs> uh, why can't the tail pass through? Why can't the tail pass through? Um, <clears throat> when you uh, approach koans or hear koans, there are so many ways uh, to study them. Uh, traditionally, the koans were uh, teaching stories, almost always a dialogue between two people. Not always a student and a teacher, sometimes two students together or two teachers fighting. And uh, different teachers... Uh, use those stories as teaching devices. And eventually they were put into collections, and the collections were based on the biographies of those teachers. And those teachers would use those collections as sequential koan curriculums. So you would do your seated meditation practice, and when (coughs) there was some calmness in your practice the teacher would give you a koan. And then your job would be to present the koan to your teacher whenever you had meetings with your teacher. 
and in some monasteries, the teachings, you, you could have uh, interviews with your teacher a few times a day. So uh, this was central um, to, uh, to many forms of Korean, Japanese, and Chinese uh, Zen practice. Um, eventually, like any good religious liturgy, technique, literature, uh, it gets, uh, it, it has problems. So, for example, there was one famous um, uh, Japanese master who was so fed up with uh, how koans were being taught that he just wrote a book with all the answers. <laughs> uh, of course, any of you who've practiced koans know that you can't just read an answer because it has to be in you, fully in you. And so the answer to every koan is unique for each person. There's no answer. Uh, but because we're not studying koans in that way, uh, you can also just listen to a koan, and if there's a phrase, maybe you just drop that into your life uh, here and there. Or maybe you just listen to it and you think to yourself, what's cool about this story? And whatever is cool about the story, you work with it and you bring it into your, your heart. Why can't the tail pass through? Wuzu said, It's just like a water buffalo trying to pass through a window. Her head and horns and four legs have all passed through. Why can't the tail pass through? So, do you know what a water buffalo looks like? <laughs> Massive. So, it's just like a water buffalo trying to pass through a window. Her head and horns and four legs have all passed through. Why can't the tail pass through? So, the way the koans usually work is there's the koan. And then the teacher gives a verse on the koan. And then at the end, there's a poem. And uh, it's traditional that when a student passes a koan, which sometimes could one koan could take you know 20 years, um, that when they've officially passed the koan, their job is to write a poem uh, to express their understanding of the koan. So I'll, give, I'll read you the commentary and the, the verse at the end. Uh, here's Wu Men's commentary. If in regard to this koan, you're able to turn around with it and then utter a turning word, you will be able to repay your debts and help others. If you are still unable to get this koan, reflect again and again and again on the tale, and then you'll be able to grasp it. Here's his verse. This is about the tale. If it squeezes through, it will fall into a ditch. If it squirms back, it'll be stuck there forever. This itty-bitty tale. Wonderful. So, um, a water buffalo uh, is a very common uh, metaphor in uh, early Buddhism. The Buddha used very local and homely kind of uh, 
metaphors and similes and tropes. Um, one of them was uh, always talking about the water buffalo. Uh, in China, the water buffalo uh, was commonplace. And also uh, in contemporary Asia and in India, the water buffalo is still commonplace. Uh, it's commonplace both in terms of households and it's also common in terms of literature. Many of you are familiar with the Zen tradition where there is a teaching called the ox herding pictures. So a water buffalo is an ox, same, same animal. I learned that on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so to us, a water buffalo is this uh, enormous, very exotic um, uh, image from China. Um, but in China or in India, a water buffalo is exactly the opposite. A water buffalo is uh, local, it's a household, utilitarian, everyday kind of thing. Uh, it's like a bicycle in Toronto or a pickup truck in Barrie. Um, without a pickup truck in the country, you can't get hay and you can't get fuel and you just can't uh, keep a household running. And this was the job of a water buffalo. And so in a way, to make a water buffalo stand for the utility of the mind uh, is a pretty brilliant uh, literary uh, move. Um, the water buffalo is always around, uh, always available, and always ready to serve as long as you ask it the right way. Uh, I don't know how many of you have spent time in Asia, but I have fond memories of like little kids trying to figure out how to get a water buffalo from one place to another place, and just being astounded by how massive uh, these animals are. Um, and of course, even though the water buffalo, like your mind, uh, can be trained in certain ways so that it has a, a function that's helpful for your life, um, that's helpful for your household, and that's helpful for the community, uh, the water buffalo, just like your mind, uh, is unknowable. And that's one of the amazing things about animals, that uh, at some level we all have this experience with animals where you might be able to train them one way or the other or have some kind of human relationship with them, and also you can look into their eyes and they're completely unknowable. But maybe that's true about anything. I mean, has anybody here ever woken up beside your wife or husband or lover and thought to yourself, <laughs> you know, that's what I mean. So a water buffalo is much more than a pickup truck. It's a stunning and totally unknowable animal. So I'm going to riff a little on this koan, and then we'll see what comes of it. Um, I pick this uh, koan because I love this idea of this, uh, these huge parts that can move through a space uh, or move through a threshold. And yet, there's some little part that snags the whole project. We've been on a spiritual path. Um, we've been working with the mind. Uh, and it feels most of the time, especially people who are going on retreat and really committed to practice, that we're getting somewhere. 
And then every time you feel like you're getting somewhere, uh, there's a snag. So that snag is nirvana. And that snag is also the tail. The way I see nirvana is nirvana is having trouble. But when you have trouble, there isn't uh, defensiveness and inhibition. How can we all have trouble and feel the troubles of our culture without getting caught in defensiveness or inhibition or apathy? Sometimes the mind is so ordinary that we're just watching mundane states, planning shopping lists as we're sitting in meditation. Sometimes the mind has really high states, and there's lots of people who come to practice because they just want the high states. And then the mind can get into really low states, and sometimes people come to practice because the low states are so unbearable and they need some way to work with the narratives that uh, turn and turn in those states in a, in a repetitive way. And at the same time, even though we think the mind is all these states, the mind is also uh, no mind. The mind is also nirvana. The mind is also Buddha. In Zen, mind is called no mind that even though neuroscience keeps telling us exactly what the mind is and how it's connected to the brain and how it's connected to consciousness and how it's connected to life, uh, anybody who meditates after a while starts to develop a respect for the mind in the same way that anybody who works with animals after a while starts to develop a respect for animals, that there is a level of that relationship that you can't ever know. That's mysterious. And I think sometimes meditators get a little overconfident that we can work with our mind. And we can get like that when things are pretty calm. But then when the going gets tough, it can just take a little thing like a tail. And you might think, wow, I've gotten all this, all the horn through, I've gotten the head through. And other people around us will look at our meditation practice, but they're looking at it from the other side of the window. So they see the head coming through, they see the horns coming through, and they think, wow, you're doing so well. It's like partners or spouses who send their partners on meditation retreats. It's okay, I'll take care of the kids, it's fine. Because you love that person who comes back. And they just, seeing, they just see the head of the water buffalo coming towards them out of retreat, coming through the door. And it's fantastic. Oh, look at how much they can help. Now, they don't complain about the dishes and the laundry and so on. But from the perspective of going through the threshold, uh, the practitioner is always frustrated. Always frustrated because there's that one thing that we haven't been able to work with. And that nobody else can maybe see that.
that little bit of anxiety, that tendency towards a mood instability, that one addiction that we just can't turn around, or that one ideal that we just can't seem to embody. We like the idea, but we're not living it. Or that little bit of self-centeredness. I read a statistic today that the second most popular hashtag on Twitter is me. <laughs> Love. <laughs> and maybe sometimes when you're practicing you think you've got it there are uh, this is maybe one of the most difficult things that i see from my position teaching is when people think they've got something. That our worldview can be so narrow that we think we've got it. I see this happen sometimes of practitioners who come in and they really go for it. And then they have special experiences. They go on a, ret- they go, they go on a long retreat and then on the retreat they have some like really incredible experience where something really shifts for them and then you never see them again. Listen to what Dogen says uh, relating to this koan. He says, and this is from his Genjo koan. When the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it's already sufficient. When the Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. When this practice does not fill your whole body, your whole heart, your relationships, your communication style, your embodiment, then you think it's sufficient. And then Dogen turns it around as usual. And when this practice, when the Dharma fills your body and mind, then you understand something's missing. The tail can't fit through. Of course not. Of course there's something missing in your practice. How can there not be something missing in your practice? But what happens with deeper practice is the fact that something's missing is a cause for celebration. It's a cause for going deeper in one's life because then your mind and heart are already humble maybe the tail is also uh, our uh, young life that haunts us in our society we've been taught that our adult life has been completely constructed by our childhood. 
totally sculpted by our childhood. And uh, different psychologists uh, uh, have offered different theories about how we should look at our childhood. For Freud, the thing that we most repressed uh, was our fear of death. And that our childhood is so much influenced by our desire for love and our fear of death. One of the first people to split from Freud was Adler. And Adler thought the the thing that we most repressed was power. That really at the bottom what we all want is to have power. And you can read all these psychological theories as biographies of the people who created these theories. The thing that Adler had trouble with with Freud was power. And the thing Freud had uh, was constantly dealing with was uh, death and nihilism and what to do with his desire in Victorian uh, Vienna. And Jung split from both of them because Jung felt that the, the thing that we most repressed, which is the thing we most desire, is to be connected to something bigger than just ourselves. For him, contemporary, uh, well, he called it contemporary man, I guess women didn't have this problem, um, was suffering from a disconnect to a spiritual life because it wasn't being offered through organized religion. And for Jung, he thought that this was the real motivation of people when you get behind their neuroses, what they're really anxious about is that they want to connect with something bigger than just themselves. And one of the psychoanalysts who never really got famous, unless you study psychoanalysis, was a Welsh analyst named Ernest Jones. And Jones' theory was that the thing that we're most scared of, the thing we most repress, is the fear that we won't have desire. That we won't know what we want, and that we won't allow ourselves to have wants and be frustrated by not getting those wants. That our greatest fear would be to lose uh, our desire and our passion. And I think at different times in our life, or maybe different times in the day, all of these things are true. But they all make up the tale. They all make up the tale. All these old fears and anxieties, maybe from childhood, but also uh, maybe just built into the human experience. Freud had this idea that we didn't have that, that people don't have dreams. That really, what's happening in a dream is that unconscious content is being recruited to explain or to uh, bring light to a current psychological block. The writer Adam Phillips, I can't quote it, but he says something like. 
we have so much childhood but so few memories. And Freud had this idea that memories like dreams are not something that really happened, but they're ways that the psyche in the present moment or in sleeping life is recruiting different images and situations uh, in order to explain something that's happening in one's present life. So in a way, this is how we have to treat the tale with a little more respect. You think you've gotten through the window, but actually life, capital L, or the psyche, or God, or whatever language you want to use, uh, is going to show you some new level. Like on retreat, whenever people come in for an interview and they say something like, oh, I'm so calm now, it's so steady. And I always, like, I want to look at my watch (laughs) and just say, okay, here we go. Because this is what happens. We embody a certain level of calmness, and then it's like it triggers something in the psyche that knows, okay, now they're ready to dig a little deeper. To see maybe another angle of something. Or to see the way that all energies come in opposites. First you feel peace, then you feel war. Now you feel love, soon you'll feel hate. Why is that? Maybe to really have mature relationship, we have to love people like crazy, and then also know what to do with the hate that comes on the heels of that love. Because it'll come. We're not supposed to talk about this in the Hallmark world. (laughs) And back to childhood, this is part of our tale, which is we've learned in different ways uh, how to give love or not give love, how to receive love or close ourselves off from love, how to feel the energy of hate or what to do with the energy of hate. Think about the child who loves his or her mother. And then, uh, on the heels of that love, also has hate. What happens to you when you have hate and you don't know what to do with it? You don't know how to get it through the window. Well, we all know what happens to it. If you can't feel hate and it's not safe to feel hate, you turn it against yourself. This is like an epidemic in our culture, I think. Some of you might know the famous story of when the Dalai Lama was first invited uh, to go to uh, America. He was brought by a group of people who were all training in psychology at the time. Uh, It was 1981 and I think it was Boston. You can get the video. And at the end of uh, a few days of teaching, uh, a young psychologist uh, and meditation teacher, Jack Kornfield, asked him, now that you've taught in America for the first time, is there anything you've noticed that's unique and any any feedback you want to give us? 
and uh, he kind of like uh, shuffles with his translator a little bit, trying to figure out how to express himself. And then he says, oh, yes, yes, self-judgment. I've never encountered this before. Isn't that interesting in a society that loves the self so much as evidenced by the hashtag (laughs) that we hate ourselves so much? And for any of you who've committed to some years of meditation practice, I think you know that the tale that can really hold you back from going deeper in meditation practice is uh, self-judgment and inadequacy. Because you get to a level of practice when the hard stuff comes up, you don't know how to deal with it. Because you turn it against yourself. Another reason why I'm shit. Our society is also a big water buffalo. And because we're so eager to see the movement of that big animal coming through the window, I think there's a tail or a debt that we don't want to look at either. Humans are no longer at the physical center of the universe that was once created by God. Now we're just consumers. And we've witnessed in our era the largest liberation movement that any of us will probably ever see. And that's been the liberation on the part of the wealthy of their money and their capital from the constraints of capital and money creating tremendous inequality that even last week the Pope decided to start talking about the wealthy seem to have liberated themselves from any constraints on making money and securing it and building monuments to themselves Everything's open for them now. The earth can be cracked open and drilled. Uh, Water can be sold. Uh, Unions can be dismantled. And that comes with a tale. Uh, We're witnessing a class war of the very rich against workers and the poor. And the biggest loser is the environment. Uh, The way they did this was they just repackaged their liberation movement and sold us on a few really great ideas. I want to list a few of those ideas because I'm thinking about them a lot. Uh, The first idea is the idea that capitalism and democracy have to go together. 
They always go together. It's one thing. If you want democracy, you get capitalism. And I think we should replace the word capitalism with extractivism. Because it's not like there's capitalism. It's like we're having a once-in-a-lifetime blowout sale of carbon. Uh, Number two, they sold us on the idea that privatizing services is always more efficient. Number three, they sold us on a really old idea called trickle-down economics. That the better that they do, the better it is for us. Fourth, they sold us on the idea that we're all a part of something much bigger and we're part of a global community. There's no class anymore. There's just this global community. And George Bush renamed this global community the ownership class. This idea that you now can be part of the ownership class. It's really easy to get a loan. Right? And so you can have a highly mortgaged house. And you can have a highly mortgaged car. And if you can't afford any of those things, it's okay because you can own a part of the stock market. In the 1990s, when corporations were firing tens of thousands of people day after day after day, and their profits were getting better and better and better, it seemed like being in the stock market became like the national sport. When you read the newspaper, the cool thing was being able to play the stock market. And suddenly everyone was in the stock market. But it was a whitewashing campaign to get people excited about stocks so they're not looking at something else, which is what was happening to labor. And fifth, um, an idea that hopefully died with Margaret Thatcher, is that if you're not sold on any of the other four ideas, don't complain too much because there's no alternative. And it seems like talking about capitalism to the converted is okay. But if you go to like a party and you start talking about problems with capitalism, it's like the most taboo subject, right? So if Freud was talking about the repression of sexuality and death and Adler was talking about the repression of power and Jones was talking about the repression of desire... Maybe as healing professionals, we need to be talking about the repression of a more imaginative dialogue around our economy. It seems like the two things that we repress in our culture is a more creative conversation about work and money and beauty. So, we're in a mass liquidation sale, um, and this is the tale. One in six Americans I heard on the radio today who are looking for a job can't find one. 
And what we're creating is not um, a group of people who don't have jobs. We're creating a permanent underclass. And we don't need a revolution. A revolution is just replacing one group in power with a new group in power. What we really need is rebellion, embodied rebellion. And one thing that the yoga community and the Buddhist community can add to this rebellion is that it's a rebellion that's embodied and it's a rebellion with values. And one of, we have a few tactics. One tactic is our attention. We can pay attention. When you can't pay attention, corporations can sell you shit. Have you noticed this? Okay, so if you can't pay attention and corporations figure out how to sell you things to keep you not paying attention, then they can sell you more shit. Not only that, if you can't pay attention and you mix that with feelings of inadequacy, you have a recipe for a soaring gross national product. So one of the tactics we have, I think, as a group of people who care about the future of our planet, is being able to pay attention. Have a wide enough vision that we can allow in the joy and our accomplishments and also allow in the tail, which is our defeat and our failure. Because the casualties of our economic model are the people who end up in therapy and the people who end up in yoga classes like the ones we have here and the people who end up in meditation practice. Because we can't consume and produce at that level. We need something else. And the first place to go is the body and the breath and community. We need to sit and we need to sit right in the middle of our life with our stress, with our suffering, and with other people's stress and suffering. And we become more open to what arises in us, and we become more open to what arises outside of us. And it's time when we need to make a choice of what side we're going to stand on. Because there are sides. So you have an ethical obligation to practice. And eventually we can accept ourselves and we can accept the mess we're in, and we're unafraid. This is my hope whenever I'm working with people. 
is that they'll practice to a point where they're not afraid anymore of themselves. They look into the tail and they see all their desire and they're not afraid of it. They look in their tail and they see their unlived life and they're not afraid of it. When you know that your life can include the tiny tail, something much bigger happens. Um, in the verse at the end of the koan, koan uh, woman says, uh, when you get the koan, what happens? You can go repay your debts. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What happens? You can go repay your debts. And he also says, you can give a turning word, which I always hear, you can turn the world. I, I don't know why I do that. It's not what it says, but that's what I hear. A turning word refers to, uh, with a koan, you express the koan. You activate it. But I like the idea of turning the world, because it's said, for those of you who studied Buddhism, that there were three turnings of the wheel. When the Buddha started teaching, it said he turned the Dharma wheel and set the wheel of the teachings in motion. When Mahayana Buddhism came along, they were responsible for the second and third turning of the wheel. What I'd like to suggest is that this koan, if we take it in contemporary sense, could be asking us to turn the wheel of Dharma a fourth time. And the fourth turning of Buddhism is going to be to include uh, justice, the environment, our climate, which hasn't been included in a really clear way in any religious practice that's dealing with these difficulties that we have now. So I'd like to end with a little story um, it's a Jewish story. Um, in mystical Judaism, there's a story that before the beginning, there was a beginning. And before that beginning, there was a beginning. And before that beginning, there was a beginning. And in that beginning, there was a light that filled a vase. And the light filled and filled and filled the vase until one day the vase exploded. Shattered everywhere. And it's interesting because in Mahayana Buddhism there's exactly the same story. Avalokiteshvara, the deity of compassion, was filled with light and the light increased and increased and increased and then she exploded. And that's how you got all the different deities of compassion. Anyways, in the Jewish story... Um, it said that once all of these pieces were broken, the righteous came and started putting all the pieces back together again. So I think if we were to translate that for contemporary times, we would say, the vase has exploded. And when you practice, you start to appreciate all those different fragments and the only thing you left to do, you, you can't help yourself, is to become a peacemaker. 
And my definition of a peacemaker is somebody who's picking up all those pieces of God, all those pieces of Avalokiteshvara, all those pieces of our earth and our future, and trying to put them back together again. And the nice thing about this image is it doesn't exclude anything. So you can't say, I'm a social activist, I just deal with women's issues. You can't look at women's issues without looking at our economy, without looking at our environment, without looking at our debt to indigenous communities. And without taking care of your own body and your ways of communicating and listening. So our society seems organized to kill that tail. But the tail can't be killed. It's one piece of a much larger whole that's going to move through this threshold. So, thank you. I'll stop here. And maybe we can have a few minutes for some dialogue. Oh, and feel free to stretch your legs, too. What about the poem? The verse was the poem. You can write your own poem, though. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.